You're listening to Key Conversations for Leaders. This is episode number 10. Welcome, everybody. In today's episode, we'll be discussing how to practice the pause and soar with Mike Cameron. We'll be covering the power of rituals in creating consistent success, how to live a meaningful and purposeful life, and how you actually get more done with ease rather than effort, and much, much more. If you look at the major successes and the massive setbacks you've had in your career, they can all be traced back to conversations you either had or didn't have. In fact, your future and that of your company is determined by the quality of conversations you have with your team, your customers, and yourself. This podcast will teach you how to be a better leader through better conversations. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Conversations for Leaders. I'm your host, John Ryan, and today we have a very special guest, Mike Cameron. Mike is an author, speaker, successful entrepreneur, and philanthropist. With over 20 years of experience in entrepreneurial endeavors, Mike is the former CEO of Axiom Mortgage Partners. He also has a TED Talk called Redefining Badass, is an ultra marathoner and an Ironman athlete. Welcome to the show, Mike. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. I am uh, looking forward to this conversation. I, f- I feel like we've, we've already had a pre-podcast podcast. Now we did. The meat we, of it. We've been talking for a little bit, and I, and I love it. And we said we should actually record this and share this with other people. So I appreciate you having this conversation again, but we're going to go even deeper. And and I got I to gotta comment, first of all, because you say redefining badass. I'm pretty sure that all those things that, that I just mentioned in your bio, th- that is badass. That actually is not – that is the definition, I think. Of badass. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> but I know that your TED Talk on redefining badass obviously goes into really so, some deep stuff. And, and I'd like to talk a little bit about that as well, if that comes up as part of our conversation. But I want to ask you first, you know, in writing your book, Becoming a Better Man, you mentioned how you really came from some difficult times and to becoming an award, uh, to running an award-winning multi-million dollar business. Can you tell us really about how that journey progressed for you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I kind of joke that, you know, I I literally started my career bagging shit, which I did. When I was 18 years old, (laughs) I got a job at a garden supply wholesale company, and literally I was bagging steer manure. And, uh, you know, one of the things I realized there very quickly was that was not what I wanted for a career for the rest of my life. And I've always sort of had a strong work ethic. So I worked hard in the warehouse, um, eventually moved up into pulling orders, eventually moved up into driving a truck, and then ultimately ended up in the sales department at the, the Garden Supply Wholesale Shop and ended up selling those bags of steer manure that I, that I used to put together. And what I started to learn at that point, which will become relevant much later in my journey, was that nobody buys steer manure because they want to own a bag of shit. Mm-hmm. People buy steer manure because they ultimately want the feeling that they're going to get from planting a garden, growing beautiful flowers, growing tasty vegetables in those gardens. And I started to realize that people buy based on emotion, not on logic. Because again, there's no logical reason to own a bag of shit. We want what that is ultimately going to give us. So, so that was kind of the first seed that was planted in, in what, what has now kind of become uh, my life's mission. And you know, ultimately I, I worked, I kind of hit the ceiling at the garden supply company working in sales. And started looking at, okay, where do I go from here? And I ended up playing hockey with a guy that, that uh, was having lots of fun, making lots of money. And I said, well, what do you do? And he was selling mortgages, financial instruments at the time. And I said, well, how do you do that? So he told me and I went and got the license he needed and did all the courses and all that kind of stuff. And then I moved over into that realm and I ended up doing very well uh, with that. And uh, that was when I kind of had my, my second lesson into the fact that we buy on emotion justified by logic. You know, I was 26 years old. I was doing really well, making more money than I'd ever made in my life, living in downtown Vancouver, British Columbia. So big city, right downtown. Uh, I was a baller and uh, I wanted to drive a vehicle like one. So I walked into the Porsche dealership at the time, 26 years old and 
young and dumb and all the other things that go with that. Uh, I walked into the dealership and uh, Bill, the guy that sold me the car, he knew all too well that we buy on emotion. And he saw me coming in and, you know, asked me a few qualifying questions. I think he figured out very quickly that uh, this dumb kid probably had enough money. He could, he could make a sale. He sat me in the car. He stroked the leather seat, said, oh, doesn't that feel nice? Can you imagine driving this thing up the Sea to Sky Highway from Vancouver to Whistler? It's a windy highway and the Porsche engineering just hugs the road. He says, why don't we take it out for a test drive? Mm-hmm. And uh, he looks outside and it's sunny. He says, we can put the top down. And I'm like, oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> so long story short, I ended up at 26 year old, six years old, buying a Porsche that I really had no business buying. But again, that was kind of my next lesson into the fact that we buy on emotion. There's nothing logical about buying a Porsche when you're 26 years old. It was all based on emotion. And uh, yeah, so for me, that was where I I kind of started my journey. Uh, Ultimately, I started looking at, okay, so knowing that we buy based on emotion, if I want to sell more mortgages, more financial instruments, <clears throat> then how do I make a better emotional connection with my customers? And, you know, I'm a guy that likes to understand the why behind the what. <clears throat> so I started digging into the science of it <clears throat> and, uh, and learned a, a lot and sort of implemented that. And, and again, it ended up being fairly successful in that realm. Uh, and, and ultimately, um, I ended up... Yeah, I mean, I've I've got a fairly long and winding path. I I ended up in another another province because nobody else wanted to to go open up a shop for the company I worked for. Um, Again, so we moved out to Alberta, the province next door, and uh, set up shop for the company I worked for at the time. I was going to be the guy running the province. Uh, Ultimately, a month after we moved out there, uh, I got a phone call from the financial services regulator telling me that the company I worked for had been shut down. Turns out it had been the largest mortgage fraud in the history of British Columbia, a $240 million Ponzi scheme. Oh, no. Yeah. So, hi, you didn't find that, did you? No, I did not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was digging, man. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so that was um, sort of, yeah, my, 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 my first big kick in the nuts, so to speak. Uh, we were literally, I moved my fiance out, you know, 1500 kilometers away from home. And, uh, we were one month in getting set up and I got, I got the phone call. So all of a sudden I was scrambling and, and we were kind of starting from scratch. So yeah, it's, it's been an, that was an interesting journey. And then, uh, yeah, ultimately again, skipping a, a few years, uh, I went on to found my own company and built that from the ground up, and then uh, ultimately ended up. I just sold that, as I was telling you. I sold that in in December of of uh, last year, twenty nineteen. Awesome, and that was Axiom. And you said that was was it fifteen? How long ago? Fifteen years? It was sixteen years total time. So I founded that in two thousand and three, and sold it in uh, twenty nineteen. Congratulations! That's that's amazing. Thank you. Now I'm kind of curious because I think what I hear you saying is that that theme of no one wants the bag of fertilizer. Mm. In fact, even when you're getting sold the Porsche, it's not just the the machinery and the leather. It's how it makes you feel inside that, that makes a difference. That idea of focusing, because it, it seems to me like beyond even the benefits. Yes. Because you can talk about benefits, miles per gallon, the, how good the mulch is going to be when you put the fertilizer in the ground, et cetera. It's not the benefits. It's actually the feelings that the benefits give you that makes that really makes the sale. Is that are we getting close Ab- to that? Absolutely, yeah. And and from a leadership standpoint, a sales and leadership, like you know, we we talked about a little bit. I've I've spent two decades talking on this this topic, and and what I realized was that you know not only do my customers buy based on emotion, but my staff productivity is directly linked to emotion. And like I said, I've looked at guys like uh, Dr. Antonio Damasio, uh, Brene Brown does a lot of, of work around that. Um, Dan Goleman, um, yeah, there, there's just there's lots and lots of research that talk about the fact as human beings we actually make decisions 
based on emotion. So not only is it about buying, in life in general, we make decisions based on emotion. And for me, that became incredibly important to really look at that fact. So if, if we make decisions based on emotion, we, we can never really understand, if we don't understand the underlying emotions that drive the decisions we make, we'll never live a purposeful and meaningful life. And, and so that really has become my focus as a speaker and a writer. And, and that actually is one of the quotes that you have, you know, prominently on your website is that if we don't really understand the emotions behind the decisions we make, I think it was something along that we'll never really realize a fully awakened um, existence. Existence, yes. If, if that's the right word. Tell me, if you don't mind, share a little bit more about that. Um, what does it mean to have a fully awakened existence to you? Ah, that's a great question. I don't know that I've ever been asked that one. Um, and I hesitate using the word awakened because it, it it's a little bit charged and it means different things to, to different people. So that's why, again, in this context, I use the you'll never live a, a fully purposeful life because I feel people can connect with I want to live a purposeful life. So for me, awakened was just getting in touch with who the hell I really am. And having the courage to step into that and live that fully, you know, authenticity is a big buzzword we hear. And again, these these drums that get beaten so loudly, I, I fear that, you know, they're so loud that they become deafening and they become these meaningless platitudes. But for me, uh, living a fully awakened existence is about stepping into who is Mike Cameron, really? And not giving a shit about what John Ryan thinks of Mike Cameron, but just owning who I am and being okay with that. And in order to do that, I need to understand the feelings that fuel the behaviors I take. You know, you, you touched on it in, in the sales context. We, you know, we try and influence behaviors, but behaviors are based on decisions, decisions based on emotions. So if we really want to affect change in behavior, and again, with a lot of the altruistic work I do, this is where I come from. So, and again, look at your kids, right? If, if we want to talk about impacting behavior, we want to change behavior. Rather than focusing on the behavior, Johnny, stop that, Johnny, stop that, Johnny, stop that. Let's look at, okay, why is Johnny doing that? What's the feeling that is either causing that action or that Johnny hopes to get out of that action. And if we can address that emotion that's driving the behavior, then we can seek to actually change the behavior. Because, you know, again, it comes back to, you know, diet and exercise and all these things that we try and do for ourselves. We try and brute force change the behaviors. But until we address the underlying emotions, there's no longevity in that. So, you know, we can brute force make changes for ourselves. We can stick to a diet for a certain amount of time. But if we binge eat because loneliness, depression, you know, whatever, whatever sort of emotional experience is driving us to take those behaviors, we can, we can brute force the behavior all we like, but it's not going to be sustainable until we address that underlying emotion. So the application that I'm hearing you say is, is, twofold. One, on a self-reflective perspective to know who is Mike Cameron, who is John Ryan, and why am I making the decisions that I'm making? Where is this coming from? But also in stepping into my team member's shoes, what's causing that behavior? Because if I can logic it, I can come up with a, a plan is what I'm getting from you. And we can talk conscious mind to conscious mind. But if we're not really getting into the emotionality behind that, we're not really going to create a change any more than if I willpower myself to go to the gym or go for a run like I know you do. Yes. No, absolutely. And that's what I talk a lot about is empathetic leadership. And that's really being able to connect with those feelings of your team, because yeah, I mean, you can brute force, I'm the boss, you have to do that. Uh, but I think as most of us probably know now, that doesn't work so well. Are you finding that people are more open to exploring the emotionality and the, and the empathy than they were maybe 10, 15 years ago? I, I think absolutely they are. You know, again, Brene Brown has been a huge pioneer in that space. And I absolutely love, love, love her work. Um, and I think 
you know, people like her have, have made it more acceptable. I still think there's a lot of misconception around it. I think there's also a lot of people trying to manipulate that and, and sort of, you know, put out that sort of false vulnerability in order to, to try and garner a connection. Um, but when it comes from a true and authentic place, absolutely, I think there it, the impact is huge. And, and we're seeing it, like we see it all over the place. And, and I think the results speak for themselves. So yeah, I, I think people are starting to be a little more um, open to having these conversations. And, and I think also we're finding that, you know, what we've done historically just isn't fucking working anymore. So we need, you know, again, it's that, that quote, if you want, if you want, want what you've always had, keep doing what you've always done. And I think people are getting a little bit tired of what we've always had. And, and so they are open for change. Yeah. There's a lot of opportunity to change in, in every level of our society, uh, business-wise, socially, economically. So it is, it's an opportunity. It really is. I, I want to ask a couple things you said that are really interesting. One, the vulnerability, the false vulnerability are people, I feel like, I mean, our own, we have a cognitive bias that we tend to think that we can tell when someone's being authentic or not. And we tend to think that most people think that they're smarter on average than everyone else. But that's 70% of people think they're smarter than average, which is not, doesn't make any sense. <laughs> so the illusory superiority, the illusion of superiority. Are we good at sniffing out people who are false, vulnerable and being fake and, and actually manipulative? Or are we not as good, you think, as we might think we want to be? Well, I'm part of that 70%. So I think <laughs> I'm good at it. And, and you know, 78.2% of all statistics are made up. I'm not sure what that means for the other 22% or whatever. <laughs> um, I, no, I, I do think people are pretty adept at sniffing out that falseness. Uh, I think we see it enough that you know, there, there's no credibility in it. And, and, you know, we're, we're definitely, I think, getting better at, at sniffing that out. Well, I think you're, if I hear what you just said in there, like there's so much of it out there now that we're more aware of it maybe than we were in the 1980s. Like one of my clients said, he gets so tired of people saying, sending out a webinar link, for example, and then, and I will, Oh, sorry, I sent you the wrong one. No, you didn't. You're just looking for another opportunity to get in, in front of that person and you're being unauthentic and it totally turns people off because people want real people. The other aspect I want to ask you about the authenticity is sometimes I've seen people who say, well, I'm just being authentic. This is my truth. And it's almost like a, a shield they get to put up for being a jerk and, and not being empathetic and really seeking to understand the other person's feelings. Um, can someone over, or are they not really being authentic or are they just using it? I don't know. Yeah. And, and I wonder about that too. I, I remember, um, yeah, a comedian who's now fallen very much out of favor, but he used to talk about that. I remember like when I was a kid, my dad had a record of, of this comedian and he, he talked about, uh, it was some joke about cocaine and he said, yeah, but it intensifies your personality. And then he says, yeah, but what if you're an asshole? <laughs> and I think the same thing, like, eh. so I'm authentically an asshole. So that makes it okay. I, I, yeah, I don't know that, that I buy that. Um, and I do think that a lot of times some of that behavior, those attitudes are simply masks for things that are lying a little bit deeper. And what I think some people want to couch as authenticity is maybe actually a mask and, and they're not, they don't have the courage to really take that look in the mirror and say, who am I really? Not just who am I, but who am I really? And that takes guts to do. So it does. Yeah. I, I definitely think there, there are some that would, would hide behind that as a take me as I am. Right. Um, kind of thing, but they haven't really explored who they are. And that's, that's exactly, I think the point, you know, very, uh, Brene Brown ask to, to go in and search inside and, and acknowledge the feelings that are there. And if you do the work and go inside and understand why you're doing what you're doing, then you don't have to have any excuse for being a jerk. You can yes. even own it. I suppose there, there are times, you know? 
Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, it, again, it comes, you know, Eckhart Tolle talks about with awareness comes choice. And that's why I'm such a huge fan of taking the time to sit down with your emotions, your feelings, and really have the courage to explore them. Be brave. Because once you understand that, you know, this is coming from a place of anger, or this is coming from a place of sadness, or this is coming from a place of hurt, well, then you can make that decision. Do I actually want to take that behavior? Knowing where it comes from, does this make sense to do? And, and that's where I, I think we've got a lot of work to do as a society, because, and especially for men, you know, we've kind of been beaten over the head with how we should be. We've got marketing companies spending billions of dollars telling us that we got to be the old spice man fit and sitting on a horse. Um, and that if we don't have old spice, we're less than, and you know, I don't mean to pick on old spice cause I actually like old spice and that commercial is hilarious. It but, is. Yeah. It's funny. But, but you know what I mean? Like we're bombarded with these messages of you're not enough. You're not man enough unless, and I think that is really, really problematic because we end up making these decisions very knee jerk and, and we don't really take the time to, to dive into them. What are some of the things that you think in, in, in your book, Becoming a Better Man, what are some of those attributes that, that men specifically you feel have to do or should not have to, but could help to develop empathy, to have more awareness and not succumb to the external, here's who you should be to help them. Yeah. Redefine what it means to be badass as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, so I use the acronym SOAR. Um, that I don't dive into that in the book. So the book is really just the story of my life, my journey, and the lessons learned along the way. It's funny. I've had so many people when they pick it up, they, they call me and say, or send me a note and say, you know, I fully expected this was going to be a finger wagon, finger pointing. This is what you should do. And he goes, dude, this is just your story. I'm like, yeah, that's exactly it. It's just sharing my story. Um, so the book I'm working on now, book number two, will be much more in the vein of this framework. And like I said, I use the acronym SOAR. Slow down, open up, accept whatever's coming up, and reconnect with your purpose, reconnect with your emotional self, whatever, you know, whatever resonates with you. I talk about reconnecting with your emotional self. So that is the framework, and it's been just fascinating for me to look at how I apply that and where I can apply that. And it, it's been almost everywhere, like from a business standpoint, from a personal standpoint, from a leadership standpoint, from a sales standpoint, you know, talking about in, in sales meetings, if you open or lead with that kind of framework, imagine if you open the meeting with a 60 second slowdown, a, a meditation even, depends on how sort of, you know, woke, your, your team is, but even just taking 60 seconds, you know what, team, we're just going to sit for a minute. We're just going to get fully present with what's going on in the room. I know you guys got tons of shit going on in life. I know there's a lot of pressure from you on a business standpoint. Let's just take a minute, take a pause and slow down. It's like, okay, let's go. Now we can open up share. Again, when I talk about open up, that's, that's kind of twofold. One for yourself. So now that I've slowed down, I need to be open to whatever's coming up. And for, for guys, I always counsel them, start with the physical because as guys, we're usually pretty good at identifying those somatic markers, those physical things. You know, is there a tightness in the chest? My shoulders tight, my jaw. For me, I carry it in my jaw. There's a little tension there. Okay, I can notice that tension. All right, now what's coming up emotionally? Right now, there's just there's a lot of gratitude and peace. That's what I'm feeling. So open up to yourself to allow those things to come up. Because most of us don't. We get busy and we talk, I'm, I'm so busy, I'm so busy, John, I don't have time for that. I don't have time for that. And we push it all away and we push it all aside. Or we make ourselves busy. 
you know, um, I think it's easy to understand when we talk about addictions, you know, people get addicted because they're burying feelings. Well, we do a lot of things. And for me, it was workaholism. You know, we do a lot of things to bury feelings and they're not always socially unacceptable. Sometimes, in fact, we get lots of pats on the back for them. So just taking that time to slow down, open up to whatever's coming up. And then that accept piece is huge because so many of us like to beat the crap out of ourselves. Like if I'm feeling sad or I'm feeling unhappy, Jesus, man, what right do I have to feel unhappy? I've got everything. I'm so blessed. I'm so, why do, why should I? And then you start this spiral of beating yourself up. So just accept that whatever you're feeling is how you're feeling and that's okay. And then like say reconnect. For me, I use the term reconnect because we weren't born emotionally disconnected. We've been conditioned to become that way. Do you have kids? I have one kid. How old? He's seven. Yeah. So you so you you know when they're born, they're not emotionally disconnected. Those toddlers, <laughs> they're very adept at expressing emotions. Yeah, they so, are. So so we're not born emotionally disconnected. We've been conditioned to become that way. And and for guys in particular, you know, we've been taught that we have to be stoic. We can't cry. We have to bottle it up. We've got to keep it in. The only acceptable emotion is anger and rage. And that needs to change. That needs to change. And the more we can dig deeper. So, okay, so I'm angry right now. Okay, well, let's peel that back a little bit. What's really under, is it really anger? And I talk a lot about primary and secondary emotions. Uh, again, I'm not a psychologist by any stretch, but I just talk lived experience. Can we peel back those layers? Maybe there's some hurt there. Maybe there's some sadness. How do we deal with that? How do we address that? Rather than this anger management stuff, maybe it should be sadness ma management. Because oftentimes anger is just sadness masked. Totally true. So, and, and I'm, I'm a big fan of getting to the root cause. As a, as a business guy and a sales guy, you know, I don't have a whole lot of time talking about the problem, let's talk about, you know, the root solution. Let's not just complain about things. Let's find root solutions. I can see how people might at first glance say, oh, I like you said, I don't have time to do that. But the reality is there's a difference between being inefficient and being, an effect, being effective. Mm. Efficient is getting it done fast and effective is getting it done right. Because if you get it done right and get to the root cause, like you said, then you're not wasting time on all these other things that aren't really related to the core issue. Yeah. For sales, it's getting to the emotions. Why do they want that? Same thing with leadership. Why is this problem here for this person? Why am I having this? Why is this coming up for me? Soar. Go through that process. And, and thank you for leading us through that process. I hope if you're listening, you went through it too. It took me a second. It took me a second to calm down. I was like... <gasps> But we're, 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 and I had to call it, and it felt really good. Thank you for yeah, well, going through that. It, it, it is amazing because, I mean, it, it, I have to practice that because as you can tell, I get pretty excited. I get fired up. I get excited about stuff. And again, it doesn't mean you can't be productive. It doesn't mean you can't be excited about your shit. It doesn't mean you have to walk around like a Zen monk all day, every day. But I think there is huge value in just choosing those moments and I use the term practice the pause. And for me, when I get riled up, that's what pops into my head. Practice the pause. And I just take a breath. And maybe it's 10 seconds, maybe it's 30 seconds, maybe it's 60 seconds. Maybe I sit down for a 45-minute meditation. But maybe I don't have time for that. But I've always got time for 60 seconds. Yeah. Like you can always take 60 seconds. And that's, for me, that's a, a big piece too, is oftentimes you can get more done with ease than you can with effort. And just really leaning into that. You know, in Canada, we're big hockey fans and we talk about gripping the stick too tight. I don't know if you're a hockey fan, if you've heard that sure. term. Yeah. But when a, when, a, when a peak performer isn't playing well, the commentators often talk about, oh, he's, he's gripping the stick too tight tonight. And that just means he's, he's, he's not just going with the flow. He's not just relaxing into his greatness. He's gripping the stick too tightly. And I use in my book, I talk about when I learned to, to rock climb, 
and uh, the woman that taught me how to climb, she used to uh, she used to yell at me um, when I was on the wall, and and her her mantra to me would be she'd yell and she'd say, "Climb like a girl, climb like a girl," and what she meant by that was. I was gripping on too tight. I was I had my arms bent and and I'm trying to muscle through. And if you're a climber or anybody out there that's a climber knows it's not about muscling through. It's about grace and finesse. It's about having those straight arms. Whereas as a guy, you know, I want to muscle through everything. Whereas when you watched her, it was just all grace and beauty and like just you could do so much more climbing with ease than you can with effort. And that was a very valuable lesson for me. So I'm hearing a couple things on that. And I love that. I'm guessing I'm not, I'm not a rock climber, mountain climber. Um, but the reason you don't want to clench and hold up like you're doing like a pull up is because that can also lead to exhaustion. I imagine it can totally, you, you get pumped. Got it. Cause you're using muscles unnecessarily. So a couple things on there. One, you have a vision. I know you, you've had visions in, in every endeavor you probably have ever done. Like you said, I'm, I'm here bagging manure. I want something different. And you're on to the next, on the next. At the same time, you also look inward to find the motivation for where you are and where you want to be. And also the way, the way you're climbing that mountain is, is a big part of that. How important are rituals for you in refining your tool of your mind and body in in being the leader that you are? Yeah, that's a great question. I, and I think, yeah, ritual is, because I talk a lot about practice, and I'll come back to that, but, but habitually performing routines or rituals is huge. Uh, and I do try and stack one on top of, of another. So for me, for the last... I don't know, a little over maybe maybe even 18 months now, I've been doing a daily Instagram story. And those for me started as practice. Uh, if you're familiar with Instagram stories, they're, they last for 24 hours. They're little one-minute videos. They last for 24 hours. So I thought, okay, well, here's a challenge for me as a speaker. I now have to try and take an idea, condense it down into 60 seconds, and put it up on the internet. And the beautiful thing is it only lasts for 24 hours. So if I completely screw it up, who cares? It goes away. And so I started doing this, like I said, probably 18 months ago. And I've done that every morning. That's my ritual is I come down, I grab a cup of coffee. Um, maybe I do my run in the morning. I grab a cup of coffee and and uh, I do my in Instagram story. And then I, be, once I got into the routine of that, I'd add something else. So that's now I added my meditation to that. So I will take 10 minutes and I will just, after I've done that, because I'm already sitting at my studio here and I've done my Instagram story and I've got that efficient now. So that's so routine. I'm, you know, it's 10 minutes and then I'll, I'll tack onto that another, um, routine, which is that 10 minutes of, of just mindfulness practice meditation. And then it's adding writing to it. Uh, and again, all of these things that you need to do. And, and of course, it gets easier now in isolation that we, we can't go out. And as speakers, we're, we're not traveling all over the place. So there's no reason not to have those rituals. So, so yeah, that I, I think ritual is, is very important for consistency and for practice. So you're establishing that routine and it sounds like you're very intentionally by design expanding and expanding and, and challenging that comfort zone. Uh, I think you mentioned to me earlier that you're, you're doing the David Goggins uh, challenge. Can you tell us more uh, about that? Yes. Well, that's exactly about expanding out of the comfort zone. Uh, for me as an ultra marathoner, it, it's not a huge stretch. But but it's it's something I wanted to to take on, and I'm going to tie it to a cause because I try and and do that as well, uh, as you mentioned, piggybacking different things. So the Goggins challenge is to run four miles every four hours for 48 hours, um, and and just sticking to that. So I start at 5 p.m. tonight, so I run four miles at 5 p.m. I'll run four miles at 9 p.m. I'll run four miles at 1 a.m. I'll run four miles at 5 a.m. and then around the clock for 48 hours. Um, and so this one I, I'm doing 
uh, violence prevention is, is, is my cause, so to speak. So I'm doing it for those where, you know, we talk about safe at home in this quarantine. Uh, for many individuals, sadly, home is not safe at all for those in abusive relationships. So that's why I'm, I'm running. That's what I'm tagging this, this to. Well, thank you for doing that. You're right. It's it's absolutely heartbreaking to hear about that for uh, spouses, for for children out there alike, and it's such an important cause. Um, and that's that's an uh, I'd never heard of the David Goggins challenge before, and he's a beast. And and yes. I know you know that like, he is he is amazing. And so, what do you think is going to be? I know you're about to start in in a couple hours. What is going to be the challenge for you? Because you're used to ultra marathon, which is what fifty miles. Longer. Well, I've done a hundred, hundred miles. Yeah. So, okay. so I've I've run the longest I've done is a hundred miles over thirty two hours, um, but that's straight. Uh, so this will be interesting in that it's broken up. So you know, can I actually get some sleep for three hours in between, um, or do you sit there going, "Oh my god, I don't want my alarm to not go off and and miss my next schedule." So. So I, so I think this, the sleep deprivation will be the hardest. I mean, running four miles for me is, is, is not hard at all. Um, so it'll, it'll, it'll just be interesting to see how breaking it up over that time frame will, will sit. And it sounds like the tricky part there is really the change in the cycles and rhythms. Mm-hmm. Although you've said you've already run, you know, a hundred miles over 32 hours. It sounds like you're just in it at that point in time. Yes. And I know you've obviously done road races. Have you ever done one of those long-term races where you're running on, you know, a quarter-mile track? Yeah, I did. I did across the years last year, um, 2018, 2019. So it's it's uh, uh, Jamil Curry puts it on. It's called Across the Years down in in um, Glendale uh, at the ballpark. There, it's a one-mile loop that you run for twenty. Well, they've got twenty-four hours. They've got forty-eight hours, seventy-two hours, and they got a six-day race. So I did the 24-hour one. So I ran in a one-mile loop for 24 hours. Now, to me, that's got to be more mentally taxing than running down the road for 32 hours. Absolutely. Well, the, again, this is why I love doing these things because they it, it's practice. It's practice finding new ways to think of things, new ways to shift your mindset to get you through difficult times. So after we were about halfway through, instead of just running, I set a goal that, okay, so I'm going to run four laps and then take a break, and then I'm going to go out on the top of the hour. So if I ran four laps in 45 minutes, I got a 15-minute break. Um, I mean, it it was, that was, I'm not that fast after after, uh, that long, but you know, so if I ran it in 50 minutes, then I got a 10 minute break. If I ran it in 58 minutes, I got a two minute break. So I made a game of it and that was my thing. So all I ever have to do is run four laps. I can run four laps all day long. So it's breaking it down into the smaller pieces, smaller goals. And, and that became achievable. Yeah. Well, and especially when you're running a hundred miles, like (laughs) if, if I, if I stand at the start line and think I got to run a hundred miles, Dude, there is no way on earth I can run 100 miles. But the first aid station um, in Sinister 7 that I did was, at the first aid station was 15 kilometers, something like that. So, sorry, I'm a Canadian. I talk in kilometers. Sure, yeah. yeah. Um, so maybe 10 miles. Um, so the first aid station is 10 miles. Well, I can run 10 miles. That's easy because I've trained for this. I've trained hard. So 10 miles is easy. And then once I get to that aid station, okay, well, I got to run another 10 miles to the next aid station. Okay, I can run 10 miles. And then, you know, the further you go, once I get to 90 miles in, it's not about, I I can run 10 miles. It's about, I just got to take 20 steps. That's all I got to do. I just got to take 20 steps. I can take 20 steps. 20 steps is easy. And then maybe it's, I got to narrow that down to, dude, just take your next step. Just take one step. That's all you got to do. You just got to take one step. You can take one step any day, all day long and then do it again, and then do it again. So the key is really to narrow your focus to as narrow a window as you need it to be. And that has been a huge lesson for me in life. So, you know, and again, we haven't got to, to sort of one of my key stories, but 
you know, when tragedy struck, that's what I had to do. I had to narrow that focus, not down into steps, but into moments. I just got to get through the next 60 seconds of the day and then the next 60 seconds. And then eventually I could start to think about the next hour and then I could start to think about the next day and then I could start to think about the week ahead of me. And, you know, so when you're in the throes of tragedy, despair, depression, grief, whatever it is, just whittling that focus down to as narrow a window as is feasible for you in that moment, it's huge strategy. Because, again, it, it, if you've got to think about, you know, the rest of your life, um, that may seem unbearable. But if you can whittle that down to, I just got to get through the next hour, and I could do that. Yeah. And that's, that's the other thing we talk about in, in Ultra Marathon, is when it sucks, when you hit that low moment, just wait an hour and see how you feel. Because chances are it'll be different in an hour. How, you know, that's the good news, bad news thing for me, which I still sort of wrestle with, is emotions are fleeting. They don't stay forever. So what you're feeling right this moment may be horrible. But just narrow that focus to getting through the next 60 seconds, 60 minutes, whatever that is, and check in, see how you feel then. Because you know, you know how you felt five years ago, probably is not how you feel today. They don't last, so that that can be incredibly useful to keep in mind when when things suck. Well, five years ago, that's when the the tragedy came across your life with. Yeah. So yeah. So let's. I mean, let's share that. Um, if you like. Yeah, no, no, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. I think it would be pretty, pretty cruel not to to share the story at this point. Okay. Kind of alluded to it. I, I kind of hate the vague thing. I'm not a big fan of that. Fair enough. No, in in 2015, uh, and again, this is this is why I'm so passionate about teaching men the practice of emotional reconnection. In 2015, my girlfriend was staying with me October 1st, 2015. She stayed at my place. She woke up Friday morning. She was a yoga instructor. She left my house at about 5.15 a.m. to go teach yoga. And uh, unfortunately, she never made it to yoga. She was ambushed by an ex-boyfriend who shot and killed her and subsequently took his own life. Hmm. And for me, that, you know, as you said, I, I'm a guy that looks at, okay, so what's beyond this? What's next? How do we, how do we deal with that? And, and that's why I talk about it. So at that moment, I mean, when that call came in, you know, I, 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 I tell the story in my book. I was out at a business lunch and hadn't heard from her all morning. And... We were walking into the restaurant and my phone rang. And at this point, you know, it, it, it's now noon and I haven't heard from her. So I'm stressed out. What is going on? What's happening? I get a phone call. So I immediately look at my phone and it's a blocked number. And I answer it and I say, hello. And the voice on the other end says, is this Mike Cameron? And I said, yes. And he says, this is Constable so-and-so. And I just, I don't remember his name. And my heart just sank. And I remember turning away from my guests and walking out the restaurant. I said, is she okay? He said, where are you? I said, is she okay? He said, where are you? We're at your house. We're coming to you. So I told him where I was. And I walked out of the restaurant. And I stood on the curb for what felt like an eternity, but was probably five or six minutes and this unmarked police car pulls up across the street and this big badass burly looking cop with a gun on his hip gets out of the car and he's plain clothes, got a badger on his neck, walks across the street and I walked to meet him and we met in the middle of the road and he just looked me in the eye and he said the three words that would change my life forever. He looked me in the eye and he said, Colleen is dead. And that was it. And at that moment, yeah, your world just goes whoop and shrinks down to nothing. And yeah, there was definitely times where I had to sit with some pretty immense grief and, and pain. But it was the next day, a friend of mine, again, I could tell stories all day long, this is a fairly long one, but to make it short, uh, a friend of mine 
who's a yoga uh, yogi in Montreal, uh, messaged me, and he had just heard what had happened. He messaged me. Uh, do you know who Ramdas is? I do. Yeah. So, have you read a letter to Rachel? I've not. Ah, uh, so good, so good. I've read that. I get goosebumps talking about this. I've read that letter hundreds of times. So he sent me a link to Ramdas's letter to Rachel. So Rachel was a young girl who was brutally murdered. Uh, Ramdas wrote a letter to her parents, and there were three sort of big pieces in that letter that he talked about that absolutely changed my life. Like, without hesitation, I can tell you, they changed my life. First, he said, Who among us is strong enough to remain conscious through such teachings as you're receiving? Probably very few. And I knew in that moment that I could curl up into a little ball, I could bury myself away, I could start drinking, I could do a number of things to ignore. But who among us is strong enough to remain conscious through such teachings as you are receiving? Probably very few. So I made the decision at that point that I was going to stay conscious through these lessons. The second was, he talked about, now is the time to let your grief find expression, no false strength. For your grief is, is Rachel's legacy to you. And again, just allowing myself to feel, allowing myself to grieve. No false strength. No false strength. And as guys, that's hard. That's really hard. And, and the last piece that, that he talked about that really hit home was he said, our rational minds will never understand what has happened. But if our hearts, if we, if our hearts, but our hearts, if we keep them open, will find their own intuitive way. And so those three pieces, when, yeah, when I got that letter, like I said, I've, I've read that letter hundreds of times uh, since that day. But I made some very deliberate decisions based on what I read that day. And it was just, like I said, it absolutely changed my life. So, you know, that, that was kind of what sent me down the path of, of violence prevention uh, and I started looking around at, at where I could make an impact, how I could contribute to the solution. And, you know, I had a lot of well-meaning friends want me to go after the justice system, which surely failed her. You know, she'd done all the right things. She had the right restraining order. She'd done the, the, the right things in court. Um, obviously, that had no impact. That didn't do anything. And I just thought, you know, how do we build a better restraining order is akin to putting a Band-Aid on a ruptured jugular. The better question is, how do we prevent men like that from existing in the first place? And then, you know, circle back to bag and shit. We make decisions based on emotion. This was a man that made a decision with very permanent consequences based on a very temporary emotion. And that is what set me down the path that I'm on now. And, uh, you know, the subtitle of, of my book is When Something's Got to Change, Maybe It's You. And, and that sort of became my, <clears throat> my mantra at the time. Again, you know, I had all my friends and family surround me, pat me on the back, and then, you know, without fail, they'd shake their head and they'd say, something's got to change, Mike, something's got to change. And I'd get up every morning and I'd look in that mirror and I'd shake my head and I'd say, something's got to change, something's got to change. You know, and then one day I added those three words that changed everything for me. And I just looked in that mirror and I said, something's got to change. Maybe it's you. Wow. And, that, and that's when I realized that, you know, I, I can, I can you, again, back to that truism, the platitude, you can't control what happens to you. All you can do is, is control what you do with what happens to you. So... You know, Colleen and I used to talk a lot of philosophy. We shared a lot of stories and lessons. And I remember one day we talked about talent and, and I asked her, I said, you know, what's your talent? And she replied that she made things beautiful. She was an artist, a painter, a photographer, a videographer. She absolutely had the knack for making things beautiful. And she turned it around. She said, what do you think your talent is? And I, I said, you know, I kind of hummed and hawed. And I said, not to take anything away because by all sort of standard measures I've been successful, but I, I'm not sure that there's sort of any one thing that I'm particularly gifted at, any one thing that I'm particularly talented at. And I said, what do you think my talent is? And she said, oh, that's easy. You've got a much more useful talent. I said, oh, what's that? She said, you make shit happen. And oh, okay. As a business guy, I kind of like that. So there you had it. She made things beautiful. I made shit happen. Together, we were going to make beautiful shit happen. 
I love it. So that has become my mantra. My quest is to make beautiful shit happen in this world. I love the depth that you bring and and thank you for sharing all the stories because it pulls together a lot of the themes that you have on your website all into one cohesive narrative. And and of course, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart on behalf of everyone for the work you're doing um, to help raise awareness and, and create change. And it all it begins inside. Absolutely, we got to start in here because if we're if we're not if we're making decisions but we're not analyzing the emotions and really what's going on, then we're not living as you said earlier the awakened life or the purposeful life. And you clearly have your purpose. I'm so glad. Hmm. Unfortunately, you found that purpose, but I'm I'm glad you're doing something about it because if something's going to change, the only person who's going to change it is you. Absolutely. I know you shared a ton of of nuggets and, and wisdom and, and thank you for sharing your story as well. Is there anything else you, you want to share with our listeners that, that we haven't already talked about? No, I mean, I could talk for hours, my friend. But <laughs> no, I, you know what? I think, I think we sort of captured the main things. Like I said, for me, that acronym soar, slow down. And that, and that's, if you've got to take one thing away is just practice that pause. Just take a breath. You don't have to do a 45-minute meditation, but just take a breath. When life's getting too much, when you're getting angry, when you have to make those hasty decisions, just take a breath and slow down. That's, again, for me, that, that's kind of the one, one piece that if, if you're only going to take away one thing from this conversation, that would be it. Thank you. What's the best way for people to, to get connected with you and uh, to be in touch? Uh, website is mikecameron.ca and uh, Facebook, I'm Mike David Cameron. And I do, I've been doing in this quarantine, I've been doing daily lives at 8.30 every morning, uh, just picking a different theme. And so expanding on my, uh, on my daily Instagram stories. So today we talked about men and confidence. It was actually, it was a really, really good conversation. So Thank you so much, Mike, for being here. I appreciate it. And it's been a pleasure. My pleasure, my friend. To connect with Mike, be sure to connect with him at Facebook at Mike David Cameron and visit his site, MikeCameron.ca, to check out his Minute with Mike series. And you can find his book on Barnes & Noble and Amazon. Until next time, develop yourself, empower others, and lead by example. You've been listening to Key Conversations for Leaders with your host, John Ryan. And I'd like to stay connected. You can find me on Twitter, at Key Convo, or you can find me on LinkedIn, at John Ryan Training.